hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of Glitchy Pancakes, real talk about the world of fandom. I'm Jesse. And I'm Rob. We've got our producer Allie here with us. Hey Allie. Hey guys, how's it going? Doing all right. Um, yeah, we're here today to talk about a really interesting topic, the, uh, the history of LGBTQ representation in science fiction and fantasy. And to help us delve into this, a really fascinating topic. There's going to be some stuff you didn't know. We can promise you that. (laughs) Uh, We have with us the owner and publisher of Queen of Swords Press, author of nine books and more than 100 short works and essays, and an all-around fantastic human, a guest of Multiverse 2019, Catherine Lundoff. Welcome, Catherine. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. We're glad you're here. How's, uh, How's Minnesota treating you? It's it's exciting. It's been exciting <laughs> yeah. for a while. <laughs> you're actually in you're uh, in Minneapolis, right? Like you're you're said yeah. you're you're fairly yeah. near a lot of the the unrest that's been that's been going on. We are very very close to a lot of the unrest that's been going on. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So it's, it's 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 been a really hard hard year so far. You know, for yeah. us locally as well as everywhere else on the planet, this is just. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, we don't have a corner on it. Ours is just a specific kind of special. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's got their own special corner of, uh, of craziness and awfulness going on right now, apparently. But that's why we do things like this, get together to talk about things that are, um, you know, <laughs> that bring a little more uh, interest and hopefully a little happiness into our lives. That's our, our whole point of being like part of the fandoms that we're part of. And um. So yeah, again, we're we're here to talk about what we wanted to get into was about LGBTQ representation in science fantasy or science fiction and fantasy. Um, that is something that has in I'd say in recent years it seems like has been getting more spotlight and there's been a lot more public conversation about the need for that representation and and what forms it's going to take. Um, but it's absolutely not a new phenomenon. Um, it goes back a long way. It's just maybe it seems like maybe people have become a little more aware uh, recently. Is that is that your perception of it as well, or what do you think? Um, I definitely. I mean, the thing about you know queer spec fic is that it kind of comes and goes in waves of interest. So there'll be like a you know something will will happen and it will set off a, a whole round of people getting really interested in the topic. And, you know, looking back at things and looking at, you know, various forebearers and so forth. Um, And then it kind of tapers off and then it comes back again. And I said on another podcast recently that, you know, that the the fun of writing LGBTQ speculative fiction and being a member of various communities under that is that we're constantly reinventing ourselves. And it's a combination of thing history getting lost, history not getting remembered, you know, history that, you know, we are reinterpreting through a different lens and are, you know, projecting onto sometimes, um, as well as things that we're missing because we were looking at it a certain way before and, you know, we're looking at it a different way now. Right. Um, So I think all of those things kind of, kind of, come together in an in interesting, fun-filled mass of stuff. <laughs> is, it, yeah. um, is, it di- is it difficult to like, because I mean, we talk about any community um, and how just the generational differences are. Um, is, 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 it, is it difficult to, to kind of target younger audiences? 
Yeah, I would definitely say that there is. Um, there's a big generational divide, I think, between people who grew up with the internet and people who did not. Right. And I think that that's definitely a part of it. Um, there, there's a tendency to think that the world we have now that is very, very internet driven and very internet focused is how things have been. Mm-hmm. So the assumption is that, well, obviously this thing was there and was happening. You know, you're just not either looking at it the right way or you just haven't found the information yet. Now, could that be possible? Sure. Um, but at the same time, it's like, well, communication didn't work like that. Education didn't work like that. There were, you know, legal issues. There was this, there was that, which is going to make a difference in what you get. Right. As well as what gets preserved going forward. Right. Okay. Yeah. That, that's, that's a very true thing about how people, um, you know, especially younger folks, but I think it's a feature of human psychology, regardless right. of how old you are, is the tendency to think that um, the, the, the world that you grew up in, you don't really think about how different things were even very soon before you were born. I, I heard someone say recently that they, they told their kid who's a teenager. Um, they, they said, I'm older than Google and the kid didn't believe them, but <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it doesn't take that. I mean, if you were born, when was Google invented? I mean, it was, <laughs> yeah. I, I got to look that up, but I mean, yeah, it's to them. It's just, it's like unfathomable. Like what this, you're like, you existed before this, this thing that, you know, I've considered timeless Right. It's like, no, this was, it was like, what, 2004 or something like that? Yeah. Like, yeah. it's not Mid-2000s, even that long ago. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, I, I can remember going to grad school and I actually built my computer myself. It did not have a hard drive. It had those like giant floppy disks that you recorded on. Oh, oh man. And oh, yeah. I built it from spare parts. Awesome. <laughs> nice. <laughs> The giant floppy disks that stored, like, you know, we couldn't even store a picture <laughs> on now. There's, there's, right. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't like the record-sized ones, but it was yeah. the next size down. Right. Like the three and a half ones, yeah. yeah. I still have ones. some of those. I had to buy a converter so I could see no. what was on them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Google, by the way, was uh, founded in 98, so a little earlier oh, than I thought, okay. but it was not, uh, there was no IPO until 2004, so... That yeah, must be what I was thinking of, but yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. The, the general uh, idea there is like, like, like you were saying, people don't really consider that um, stuff like this is cyclical and, and how different things might've been if they didn't have the resources they have now with everything being so internet driven, like you said. Um, do you think that that affected um, the queer representation as far as how it was able to be preserved? Like was, was it, do you think less likely to be preserved um, in, uh, as opposed to other uh, uh, similar fiction um, around the same time? Well, you you got to consider that, you know, certainly in the U S but it kind of applies to other, you know, English speaking countries that are you know predominantly Western as well, that you don't really have an interest in archiving and preserving queer history because for one thing it was, you know, illegal and carried gigantic penalties about being out. So people didn't want to preserve things so much. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and you've got like, like here in town here at the university of, you know, of Minnesota, which is local to me. um, The, they have one of the largest archives in the world of LGBTQ representation. 
And it's, you know, it's fiction, it's nonfiction, it's activist groups, it's all kinds of things called the Treader Collection. And the way it got started was the man who started it started doing it in the 80s. And if I'm remembering it correctly, it was because as his friends were dying from, from, from AIDS and HIV, he was trying to preserve their memories. So he just started putting everything in boxes in his apartment. <laughs> Huh. And fast forward, and this is like not the only archive story like this. So then fast forward to the early, you know, the, to the 2000s. And then, you know, all of a sudden there's university interest, there's academic interest, there's, you know, people want to know more about the history, about these groups, about things that were going on. It's safer to be out. It's safer to use names. People don't have to, you know, have names erased from things. Um, and so that's the point where you start getting archives, so there's, you know, multiple large university archives. There are LGBTQ libraries. We have one here in town called Quatrefoil. It's a small community library. Um, so the, those kinds of resources and those kinds of things, you know, required getting to a point where it was safer to be a queer person. And this spills over into, you know, science fiction, fantasy, and horror, too, because the years where it was really unsafe to be an out queer person, like, for example, the 40s and 50s in the U.S. You know, you don't get representation. The representation you do get is, you know, queer people are monsters. You know, queer people are crazy. There's, you know, things that crop up in there, but it's there's no space to be safe in there. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, I just finished that I am. Oh, oh go sorry, ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I just finished reading um, Zami, Audre Lorde's um, mythobiography this week. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she said in there really caught my attention because she was talking about, because she, she came of age in the, you know, in the 40s and 50s when it was really not safe to be out, let alone, you know, be a black immigrant lesbian living in New York. Um, and one of the things that she said in there was, you know, each level of being out, being visible was a different level of risk. And there were so many people who couldn't make those choices. And and I think that, that that's a, a really, you know, important thing to kind of keep in mind when looking at, you know, the past and what we preserve, what we don't preserve, what we may have lost, what we may not have lost, is that, you know, depending on degrees of safety, degrees of privilege, degrees of access, you know, there's stuff that I'm sure exists that we're just never going to see because people never felt safe enough to preserve it. You know, it got destroyed. It got tossed. You know, it, it it's just buried so deep that you just can't see it anymore. Um, you know, so I, th I think it was, it was just it was a thought provoking thing that I thought was really relevant to, to how we talk about, you know, preserving queer history, pre preserving queer, you know, queer literature, queer art up to and including, you know, the books that we write, the stories that we write as well. Mm -hmm. So, so when it was very unsafe to be out and there were some things I think that have, you know, uh, survived, even though, uh, was it mostly just coded um, were, were characters either only villains or only sad stories or were they coded as something else so that it wasn't easily recognizable? Coding is probably the most common, but I mean, you can go back to, you know, the 1800s and you can find examples of what we would now call queer science fiction. 
And that's, you know, everything from William Beckford's The History of the Caliph Batek, which came out in 1786. Wow. Um, you've got, you know, Polidori's The Vampire, which is 1819. Mm. You know, you've got Oscar Wilde in the 1890s. Mm -hmm. um, but oh, yeah. it's also worth remembering that terrible things happen to these men, even though they, you know, in, in the case of William Beckford, he was at one point the wealthiest man in England. Right. And oh, wow. when he was exposed, you know, as being gay, it was not how it was termed, but that was basically what happened. Um, he went into exile in Europe and ended up, you know, dying and, you know, as, as a pauper, essentially, in France, because he lost everything. Um, you know, the same, a variation of that happened a century later to Wilde. I mean, Wilde, you know, was, was imprisoned. You know, essentially emerged from prison, a fairly broken man, also moved to France, which was a popular place for English debtors to move to because they couldn't be easily deported. Um, John Polidori, who wrote The Vampire, uh, was part of that circle that produced Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that night where they were all sitting around telling ghost stories. Um, you know, Lord Byron slept with everybody and everything, as near as I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was, he's rumored to have been having an affair with Polidori, who was his physician. And um, Polidori wrote the vampire about him. Um, many people who survived relationships with Lord Byron wrote terrible, terrible things about him. <laughs> as near as I can tell, it was true. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, so the, the vampire that in the title is actually Lord Byron from what I've read about it. Wow. Um, but he ended up committing suicide and the rumor was that Byron had broken up with him and that was, you know, why he had killed himself. Um, so you've got, you know, these, these three men who are, you know, cis gay or bi men, you know, who are doing, you know, this kind of work that can easily be seen through a queer lens, but the price that they pay for being out in their particular societies even, you know, somebody who's one of Byron's lovers, um, you know, is, is very difficult. You know, and then at the other end of the scale, 1872, you've got Sheridan Le Fanu writes uh, a story called Carmilla, which is considered to be like the lesbian vampire classic. Um, it's about this, you know, young woman who, who is, you know, sort of rescued and brought into this family and begins draining the life out of, out of the, the daughter of the household. And Leifanu, as far as I know, and as far as I've been able to tell, was straight. But what made it okay, even though it's, it's clearly coded as queer, you know, it's, there, there's a lot of sexual overtones to it, is that Carmilla's a monster. Mm -hmm. And right. that's what makes it, in, in you know, in air quotes, okay to write about this. Um, that's that's something really interesting to me. Is 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 that particular treatment? That's something that that I I wasn't aware of for the longest time. It's not something you know, as a as a cis straight guy, it never really occurred to me to, to look at this for for the longest time. But um, the specific ways that uh, queer characters are written um or, or even depicted in movies or anything like that <clears throat> um i feel like it would be valuable to tell people who might be listening what are the things to look out for that are typically done with those characters it, it seems villainization demonization is definitely one making them into villains but uh isn't there also a, an issue with um always portraying bad ends for these characters you know, even if they're 
you know, they're not monsters or villains themselves. It somehow always has to end in tragedy. Often, um, or it gets, it gets respun as something else. You know, the fact that there's lots of lingering glances and they touch each other's hands and maybe share a bed occasionally. And there's a lot of things that we would read, you know, contemporarily as being rather more than friendship. And by the standards of their time, they may not have been. You know, that, that, that's also something to consider. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about things like Boston marriages in a little bit. Um, but, you know, just another example, uh, Christina Rossetti was a, an acclaimed poet. She was, generally speaking, part of the pre-Raphaelite circle. And she wrote a poem called Goblin Market. And Goblin Market is just like chock-a-block with lesbian sexual imagery. And Rossetti herself may have been by but she was deeply religious. And so she ended up, you know, she, she went to a convent eventually and it wasn't a, it wasn't a thing she could ever, you know, admit about who she was. There was, I mean, there wasn't language for it. And I think it was just never going to be safe enough for that to even be a possibility. But, you know, Goblin Market is like filled with, you know, the, 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 these two sisters, one um, is runs afoul of the Fae and desperately wants the fruit from the Goblin Market. And so the other sister in trying to rescue her, um, you know, it ends up coating herself in this fruit. And then there's lines like, hug me, kiss me, suck my juices, um, which have, you know, made this poem just has been like completely reclaimed as like early lesbian and bisexual <laughs> women's writing, you know, right. but the whole time Rossetti is going, no, no, they're just sisters. It's a children's poem. Really? It's a fairy tale. <laughs> 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 it's, it sounds a lot like what uh, what they used to do in music, not necessarily um, with, I mean, j just with sexual innuendo in music, right. how they would, you know, there would be popular songs that if you listen to them now were just, and, well, this, there was a lot with the uh, old blues also. There were, it was all, right. yeah. you know, it was, they were written as metaphors, but just glaringly obvious also, but they just couldn't, because of societal pressure, or perhaps even their own internal pressure, like you said, in this case, she was very religious. Um it couldn't quite just go ahead and own it and let it be out there. Right. Right. Uh, because like you said, the, the horrible consequences that there actually were, I mean, that's, it's, it's something with you, you're talking about the richest, uh, richest person in England dying penniless and exiled. Uh, it, there are not many things in the world that wealth has not typically been a protection against. Right. Um, so that, that, I think that really illustrates how, uh, how horribly uh, people were treated, how, how horribly uh, uh, queer people were, were treated just simply based on that. And the, the fact that they couldn't be protected by their wealth or status really speaks to how deeply ingrained and virulent that kind of societal uh, rejection is. There were other factors leading up to, to Beckford getting exiled, but that was part of it. Um, mm, okay. Well, you know, and, and, and I mean, the same thing, you know, with Wild. I mean, Wild was married to a woman, and if he had stayed married to the to a woman and just kept, you know, Lord Alfred on the side, and and I and I might add, had not gotten involved with the son of a wildly conservative man who invented the Queensbury rules for boxing. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> who was taking all of this very personally, <laughs> you know, if, they, if, if he kept it on the down low, he probably would have, you know, not necessarily been okay, but would have been a lot safer. Right. So in his case, he, he was crossing, 
you know, societal lines into the realms of the things that were no longer okay. You can have a mistress, we just don't want to talk about it. You can have a lover, we just don't want to talk about it. You know, so it's that line of outness that made a difference in some cases. But yeah, it's, 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 you know, fairly complicated. And the interesting thing was that, you know, the, the laws around sodomy, you know, certainly in England, in the US, you know, and many other places were specifically around men. Right. Uh, lesbians were often, and queer women in general, were often not really recognized. Um, like at one point, somebody actually approached Queen Victoria about it. And she's like, women don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, so you mean not recognized? So you're not saying they weren't recognized in terms of the legal strictures, but they literally weren't recognized as existing, right? Wow. wow. So okay. wow. when you get into um, so after the Civil War in the U.S., there was this massive, massive outgrowth in interest in seances and spirituality. Uh-huh. And so some of it was the people who had been involved in the abolition movement who, you know, lost relatives during the war and then got very involved in seances and mediums and calling up the spirit world. Um, And so you get a version of it in the U.S., you get another version of it in England. Um, I'm sure there's probably other things elsewhere that are, you know, kind of on the same line, in that same continuum in the late, you know, 1800s. And one of the things that comes out of this, there's several things that come out of it. One, you get um, a bunch of women who for the first time are the center of attention. They're communicating with the spirit world. They're running the seances. They're running the meetings about spirituality um, who then get into women's rights and suffrage because there's, there's a big spill over there. There's a lot of overlap between abolition, spirituality, and the women's suffrage movement. And you get a tremendous number of women who start writing ghost stories. So there's this huge late Victorian surge in women writing ghost stories and actually making their living from it. And amongst these was a, a woman named, um, she wrote as Vernon Lee. Um, her, her birth name was Violet Paget. And she, she had a, a, a series of longtime companions, as did a lot of female intellectuals of her time. A lot of the artists, you know, had relationships that, we would recognize as being at least emotionally queer now. Um, there was a concept called Boston marriages in which, you know, women who were able to go out of the house and work for the first time, they were, you know, they were teachers, they were typists, they were involved in the early levels of social work, um, were rooming together. And some of them were lovers, some of them were not lovers. But the term for it was was because Boston was seen as having a larger number of these female coupled households that the term was Boston marriage. Mm. Um, And so, you know, there there were some that are a little more out. So, yes, there were the the, the series of longtime companions were almost certainly female. Um, The phrase longtime companions comes from the AIDS obituaries back in the day. Um, because they they would not print that somebody was gay or people would not, the families would not let that go into the paper. So you would get a lot of stuff where so-and-so is survived by their longtime companion. Mm -hmm. So that's where that phrase comes from. 
That sounds like such a frustrating thing for people to have to to deal with just that because a a theme that's emerging here is that for the longest time, it's been something that, yeah, it exists. We know it exists, but we're not going to talk about it and you can't make it too visible or that's when there's going to be trouble. Right. Um, yeah, and I guess that would that would make its way into uh, make its way into writing as well. You know, with everything needing to be coded for fear of um, you know uh, the actual real world consequences for writing the wrong thing, or you know, at the very least, um, making audiences afraid to engage with it. Yeah. Um, so, and I, I assume that would have you know, long time companion being one example of the terminology. I'm I'm also curious about um, you know we. The term queer spec fic that that goes around a lot right now is just a, a shorthand for science fiction, fantasy, horror, comics, etc. Um, and is there still some? Um, it seems like the term queer has has very much been reclaimed and and is is a comfortable term for for most people, at least that I've spoken to about it personally. Um, where does that stand as far as uh, as far as you're concerned? Because um, that that term definitely does have negative associations for some people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, there's definitely people who are not comfortable with it. Um, I've been out since 1986, and I've been referring to myself as queer or bisexual since then. Um, so okay. I'm pretty comfortable with it. <laughs> Some of it is is it's shorthand because it's an easy easier way to kind of package it. Yeah. Um, and as kind of an umbrella term, I don't like quilt bag because it sounds like bits and pieces of scraps and it annoys me. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha but a lot of other people like do like quilt bags so that you know that that's yeah. that's a thing so i use queer mm-hmm. because that is my comfortable umbrella term and right. you know i've always used it i i was in queer nation back in the day um <laughs> i mean one of the satellite groups not like new york going down and doing die-ins at the cathedral but right. <laughs> but still you know i went to meetings and i did stuff you know um so it, it's something that you know i i've it, it is how I feel myself to be, so it is comfortable for me. But yeah, no, you're you're totally right. There are definitely people who are not comfortable with it, and right. And, I, and I've been uncertain how to really, um, how, you know, just on a personal level, how to approach that as a, a cisgender straight man. Um, you know, try to find out exactly what um, you know what terms are the the best for me to use when talking about this kind of thing because it's not. Um, you know, it's not a community that I can uh, personally lay claim to, but um, it is something that, you know, this, like I said, there's been a lot more spotlight on um, LGBTQ representation in speculative fiction recently. And I, I find it fascinating. And that's, that's some of the, I mean, it's, that's very prevalent in a lot of the best work that's coming out these days. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's just, this the terminology is something that uh, for people like myself are trying to make sure that we, use what is comfortable for people and don't um, and, and not be too cavalier about uh, how we, how we talk about it and using terms just because other people are using them. Right. Um, um, when, when in doubt, LGBTQ plus is a fallback. Yeah. Okay. You know, you can, you know, it is a mouthful. Most people though. will That's accept what I that. Use, but it is a mouthful. <laughs> yes. Right. yes. <laughs> right. Syntactically it's, you know, it, yeah, a bit of a mouthful, yeah. but it's, but like you said, it is a good, a good fallback that everyone seems to be okay with. Another quick point on terminology I wanted to make is that actually it's through some of uh, the science fiction and fantasy that I've read recently that, that I personally have 
come to a better understanding of uh, how to talk about certain things. A good example being um, that one of the, possibly the first science fiction novel that I read, or the first anything that I read with a main character who used uh, non-binary pronouns, used the the plural they, um, was Blackfish City by Sam Miller. And Mm -hmm. through the course of reading that, um, it, it became, because it's never been an issue for me in terms of what I think is right to use. People's pronouns are what they are and that's fine. Um, but getting used to it grammatically, like uh, that's one way that representation of this type really can, I think help people get used to exactly. And it really normalizes it quite a bit, even the actual grammar and terminology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely think that, that, that is, it is really helpful. Um, I was recently reading, I, I was organizing a Pride Month bundle for Story Bundle a couple of months ago, and one of the things in it was a magazine called Capricious, which is put out in New Zealand, and they have a, I forget what the exact term is, like a special pronouns issue, alternative huh. pronouns issue, anyway, diverse pronouns issue, that was it. Um, and each story had a different take on use of pronouns. Um, because oh. there's, you know, pronouns that people have invented, there's they, there's, you know, things that people have modified from other terms. Um, so it was really fascinating to just kind of go through and just look at the length and breadth of the variations. Um, because I'm, you know, I'm familiar with some of it. I, I've, I've read a number of trans writers who, you know, write nonfiction as well as, you know, people writing science fiction and fantasy. So... I spent some time trying to educate myself on this and cause a lot, of, I mean, a lot of this terminology, you know, for me did not exist until the internet. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff where I'm like, yeah, no circa 1986, you wouldn't have said that because there wasn't a word for it. <laughs> you know? So, so there wasn't a way to make it understood to somebody else that, you know, in a way that they would comprehend what you were talking about. And uh, and I will say, incidentally, it, it, since you brought up the the recent wave in you know queer voices and queer depictions and so forth, it's the third one in science fiction that I can remember, which is actually kind of interesting. <laughs> which one's the third one in science fiction? This one. It, it, oh, it's right, the right. third wave of oh, okay. you know oh, increased and improved representation. Um, there, there, there was one in the late '80s. There was one in the mid '90s, and then there was kind of a lull for a while. And then this round just picked back up again in the last, right. you know, seven years or so. That's really interesting to know how, to, or to, to hear how cyclical that that is. That's not something that was that was on my radar as far as it, you know, coming up and down like that. It seems to more. It seems like right now um, this is a pretty strong wave. Would you say that it's it's just kind of the way it usually goes, or does there seem to be actually more attention and more success with moving this forward currently? Um. You know, there's some things about it that, so, you know, in the 80s, there was kind of a brief spike and you get some mainstream recognition of, you know, queer writers, queer voices, out queer writers, writing queer characters, etc. And then that goes away. And it wasn't like there was absolutely nothing. It's just that the emphasis was on, for example, straight writers writing queer characters. Um, 
And then when you get into the 90s, there's another wave. And at the same time, we're also talking about, we're talking about more mainstream recognition. So we're talking about big publishers. We're talking about names that people recognize. Uh Um, However, there's always been a ton of small presses and, and in recent years, also indie authors who are producing, you know, queer work, trans work, um, you know, work from African-American and other perspectives that maybe is not getting the same play at the upper levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a couple of things that happen every time there's a spike. Um, how long it lasts is one question. The other thing is what I tend to think of as an old Tom Lara line, which is let's not always see the same hands. And what I mean by that, um, in his case, he was using it as as a joke about doing a Q&A session. Um, But you get a lot of the same people over and over and over again for a while, and then you get nothing. So I'm kind of, I'm hoping that that's not the case here. I'm hoping that this is building a solid enough readership and a solid enough base. And, you know, there's some really, really terrific authors out there. This isn't, this isn't about the authors and their work. This is about perception and what's perceived as a sea change and what is the flavor of the moment in predominantly New York publishing, because that's what drives everything else. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, things come and go and you get into this whole, well, we already have one of those. (laughs) And we already have one of those encompasses a lot. (laughs) Uh, We've, we've heard that from some other guests that we, that we've had on. Uh, We've heard that those are, those are some, very frustrating and dreaded words. I've already got a fill in the blank story. Right. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so I, I, I'm kind of, I, I'm, I'm hoping that this time it has, you know, longer term legs, but some of that you have to kind of see how things go for a while before you really get a sense of it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. The, the change in uh in the way we communicate and the way people promote things will increase that cycle. Maybe, you know, it, it, it might well, um, you know, the, I mean, the, there's, there's so much, especially right now, that's really unpredictable. Right. Right. <laughs> oh God, yeah. that's the truth. That's Who the knows? Truth. We may be back to cuneiform tablets in five years. Or something. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Well, at least at least at this point, we can mention everybody on those tablets. We can mention the work that we have. We can, we can archive, you know, more and tell more stories uh, um, mm-hmm. about about things that people just didn't know about. And I think that's exciting. I think that's very exciting. That does seem like one of the things that that seems good to me about this. Although I didn't recognize it as a as a recurring wave, uh, but right now, one thing that I'm liking seeing is is it seems like people are becoming open to not just to LGBTQ speculative fiction, but to the concept that there may be entire subsets or entire types, you know, just groups of writers and everything that they have been ignoring, despite the extraordinarily good quality and proliferation of that work, simply because people have had a tendency to stay in the, the, the lane of their own experience. Um, there, there seems to be some, a little bit more I'm not saying it's fixed by any means because there's a long way to go but uh it does seem like people are becoming more 
open to the very idea that maybe they need to get outside of their lane and, and read some things about other people's experiences. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Except. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm going to share a couple of things I've noticed. Um, okay. So um, amongst the things that, you know, where I've, I've really seen a growth in more, you know, diverse voices and more diverse perspectives is in short fiction. Um, so anthologies, magazines, novella length works for a while there, you weren't seeing much of a jump over to novel length works. And I will tell you a thing for free as somebody who's done a lot of research on things. When you go looking for examples of stuff, it's rare that short fiction gets remembered as well as novels. Sometimes you can get to collections but if the author isn't at a point in their career where there are collections out, they don't win a major award, um, there isn't something to give them extra visibility, then that stuff kind of dies away. Right. And it's not that it's bad work. It's not that it's not, you know, these aren't re- you know, really good books in many cases and really good stories. It's that it isn't, it isn't viewed and preserved and remembered the same way. Huh. And it probably doesn't get the same uh, advertising, marketing push either, right? No, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. Um, doesn't get the same kind of support. And yeah. I mean, just, just as an example, you know, when, when, if you look at how, you know, I don't know, I'll just pick the Yugos for an example. If you look at how the, the voting categories break down mm-hmm. and the point at which you suddenly have a much smaller peop, you know, pool of people voting on stuff right you know i mean you can actually see it (laughs) there's a point where it's like okay i've heard of them because they have x number of books out and they also have the short story you know versus Mm. they only have short stories out they are a new to me author you know there's something that for whatever reason i haven't run the run across them i haven't heard of them I don't remember their work the same way because there hasn't been a book length work associated with it. And you can definitely, you can see that kind of trade-off when you look at, you know, who gets, you know, a certain level of acclaim and who gets remembered for different things. And so one of the things that I'd really like to see is more of the, you know, the, the many immigrant queer writers of color, you know, disabled writers, et cetera, being able to make the jump to novel length work Mm -hmm. because that's pretty important. But along with that, you also got to consider that, you know, for large publishing house, you know, books, the way marketing budgets are set up and the way things go through, you can crash and burn on your second book, even if it wins awards, even if it has great reviews And so you get people who never get past, you know, the big splash of book one or the big splash of book two. They never get to book three. They don't get to book four. They don't get to to go through that next cycle of stuff. And part of that is also about getting the chance to grow as a writer. And some people get it. Some people don't. But you get a lot of, you know people the number of authors who are going through name changes and genre changes earlier in their career seems to be going up Mm -hmm. um so so i'm seeing a fair amount of that where it's like well we write mystery now (laughs) 
know, you know <laughs> right. that, and that kind of thing. And there's nothing, you know, there's certainly nothing wrong with that if that's the thing, the jump that's speaking to you. But if it's speaking to you because marketing no longer remembers your name, that's a different problem. <laughs> right. You know, so, you, so you've got people going down to the small presses and you've got people, you know, indie publishing or you've got people jumping into different genres because book two got mid-listed and tanked. And so they have to reinvent themselves to come back again. And that's really hard. That takes a real, you know, chunk out of a writer's career. Um, and it also makes a difference on memorability. Yeah. You know? Okay. So it, it, the, the really difficult part in all of this is, is not only are the othering, you know, the othering of, of, LGBTQ people and, you know, people of color, um, they're prevented from getting into the larger markets because, you know, we already have one of these, we have one of those, so we're good. And those are often written by people who are not actually aligned with those identities. Um, so is that part of what led you to open your own press? And, um, cause I've seen a lot of, um, a lot more queer presses, um, a lot more queer awards um, mm -hmm. coming out. Is that part of the reason why? Is just the fine, we're going to just take over and do it ourselves then? <laughs> well, most, most of the awards have actually been around since, depending on which ones you're talking about, you know, uh -huh. some of them have been around as long as the, since the 80s, some are products of the 90s. You get a whole wave of, of lesbian and queer women stuff that comes out of Xena fandom in the 2000s. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and they have their own award system. <laughs> you know, so th there's a lot of stuff that, that comes out of, of different kinds of fandoms. Um, so not so, so some of the awards are new, some of them are not. Some of them are, you know, have aged like a fine line. Um, it's, you know, I mean, for me, starting up a small press was that I had a couple of not great experiences and it was something that I had been wanting to try. And so I looked at it and thought, well, okay, I cannot possibly be more dysfunctional than some of the people I've been dealing with. So I, um, you know, decided I, I would give it a whirl and embark on that. Um, I, you know, I can't speak to, to other people's motivations. I think it's, you know, a combination of voices that aren't getting heard, specific perspectives, you know, getting a chance to publish the books you want to read that you're not necessarily seeing out there. Because there are things that just work better as a small press book than they do as a big press book. Um, and that's just, you know, that's going to happen. Definitely heard that. Um, so what, uh, what can you tell us about some of the stuff that you look for and stuff that you publish out of uh, Queen of Swords? What's your, what's, what's your kind of MO? Like, what are you, what are you seeking out? What do you like to publish and get excited about? Well, since I do most of the marketing, the criteria is mostly things Catherine gets excited about. So, <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> you know, so so I put out an, an anthology of fantastical pirate stories, most most but not all of which are queer. And part of that was me going, hmm, well, I need to put out another book this year. I'd like to do another anthology. What can I stand to read a lot of? <laughs> so that, that that's one part, part of it. Um, I published uh, an author named Alex Axe, who's from Colorado. And Alex is a genderqueer author and has written a series of linked steampunk novellas about this bisexual Latina land pirate in an alternate Colorado. And I had, I had read the original story 
when Alex first started writing those and was like, my God, somebody's got to publish these. And then I started the press <laughs> and Alex said, hey, hey, <laughs> you remember that time we talked at Worldcon and you said that thing? <laughs> you know, and I love those books. They're terrific. Um, so the, the latest thing that we've published is The Voyages of Sinrak the Dapper, which is <laughs> A, a, uh, an author from New Zealand named AJ Fitzwater. Um, AJ is also also ideas as gender queer, and it's the a, a series of linked adventures about a dapper les, lesbian capybara pirate. <laughs> I love that. And what happened there? I I was editing the, the pirate stories, and I had reached a point where I was like, "Whoa, this is just going to be really eclectic." And then AJ's stories came in, and I said. <laughs> And it's going to be even more eclectic. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> the previous Catherine didn't realize how eclectic it was going to be. Because <laughs> Catherine was like, you know, there'll be a lot of kind of stuff that sort of reads like you wandered into Pirates of the Caribbean and there'll be some variations on that. And, and then Catherine's like, well, we've got the post-apocalyptic story set in, you know, New York underwater. And we've got the dapper lesbian capybara pirate. And we've got, you know, somebody wrote a, a sequel to the Iliad. Oh, I'm sorry, the Odyssey, rather, where it's about um, Andromache, who's Hector's widow and what happens to her after the fall of Troy. Wow. Ooh. And it's brilliant. I, I need I to know need that. To it. <laughs> it, yeah. it's, it's really good. It's called Andromache's War, and it is, okay. is in Scourge of the Seas of Time and Space, which is the name of the anthology. And there, there's some great stuff in there. I got, you know, a writer who does, you know, a really good Howard-esque style dark fantasy. And, you know, some kind of like lining things up and at a certain point going, okay, so we got that. And we got that. <laughs> okay, eclectic. So very eclectic. But one of, one of the things I wanted to do with that book was I really wanted to get... The thing about pirates is that they're pretty much universal. You get them in huh. any seagoing culture. Um, so I wanted something that reflected that level of diversity. So I ended up with authors from like 12 different countries. And there's pirates in Singapore and pirates in the Indian ocean and pirates in outer space. And, you know, it was, it was a really fun project to do in part because of that. Okay. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. I'd never thought of that before about pirates really being a universal thing, but you're right. It like is. that it, yeah. it's even, even in place, like, yeah, you can put them in space. You can literally put pirates anywhere mm -hmm. and it's going to make sense. If there's something to be, if there's something that can be pirated, <laughs> then <laughs> Someone's going to pirate it. Yep. Yeah. Even if it's a <laughs> right. right. And by the way, about, about Sinrak the Dapper, anybody, we'll, we'll put links in the uh, show notes like we oh, always yes. do so people can go find it. Um, at the very least, like if you're listening to this right now, the Google C-I-N-R-A-K, Sinrak the Dapper. You, when you see the book cover, you're going to buy it immediately. It's just <laughs> it's just one of my favorite book covers I've ever seen. So The, the book cover has its own story, separate oh. from the book. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to get a, a, a like a um, a follow up? That's uh, the voyages of Sinrak the Dapper's book cover. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, but but a a AJ and I are, are talking about the possibility of there being more Sinrak stories. So we'll we'll see how that goes. A hint has been dropped with my usual subtlety. <laughs> right. 
Well, everybody I know that's read it so far has had an absolute blast with it. Like it's just it's such a fun story from everything it I've is. heard. Okay. It is. They're yeah. just lovely little stories. But yeah, the, the cover art actually came about because the cover artist walked up to me at a party I was having at WizCon and said, "Hey, I like your books. I want to do a cover for you." <laughs> one of my friends commented at this point if only you were more approachable (laughs) (laughs) right oh man it It worked out beautifully so yeah oh it really did yes you gotta go everyone go check it out and just check out the queen of swords press as a whole everything they have going um well, Catherine, we really appreciate you coming on and uh, and helping us get into this topic. I've learned some history for sure. There's like I didn't know. I'm gonna. I have a lot of reading to do. You have linked into my reading list because now there's there's historical things that I'm gonna have to go find out more about. Yep. Um, we really appreciate you coming on. It's been great. Um, whatever you, uh, people want to find you or find Queen of Swords, where should they look? Um, Queen of Swords is uh, queenofswordspress.com. Mm-hmm. And I'm at katherinelundoff.net. And one okay. thing I should mention is that um, I've actually done a series of survey articles about the history of queer speculative fiction. So if people are looking for a place to start, I'll send you the links to those too. Oh, um, fantastic. Could, you know, yeah, we can put those in there. the show notes and yes. people can just link directly from there. Yeah, because we, we haven't great. even gotten to the 1970s yet. I know, right? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> we, need, we need another episode or three. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we do. Yeah, no, this is a this is a, a very deep topic. Um, well, what? Uh, yeah, so that's where people can find you online. And what? What? Actually, before we disappear off of this one, what is? It sounds like there's some interesting stuff in the '70s. Is there anything that that you can kind of uh, contextualize where we are now in the '70s based on the history that you've just told us, just to kind of help us put a bow on this because it is a it's a wide ranging topic. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, any time that you have a certain amount of political and social concentration on, you know, a group of people that has heretofore been an oppressed minority, you get, you know, kind of a, an outgrowth of a flowering of literature. You get all kinds of stuff that comes out of that. So the 70s, you're looking at, you know, the legacy of Stonewall, the legacy of Compton, the things that went on there um, from a certain lens. You know, by the time you get into the 80s, you're talking about a level of awareness that comes out of, of AIDS, you know, at the AIDS crisis and how people responded to it in all the various ways that they responded to it. Um, and, you know, the 90s still has some of that flavor. You get, you know, vampires and things that are very, very clearly AIDS metaphors. Um, but it's it's also going in a new direction and you're headed for things like, you know, the campaigns for same-sex marriage, the campaigns against discrimination in the military, campaigns against job discrimination. You've got all of that stuff going on. And anytime you have a surge in visibility like that, it also spills over into literature and you will get to see some of these stories get played out. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And that actually, that's that's interesting that it does seem to line up, um, you know, the, those surges in visibility, like you said, that seem to line up with when you describe those those uh, upticks in representation and uh, and readership. Um, you think those are just, like, just direct results of that? Just uh, like you said, it's just the spillover into literature well, from what's going creates, on socially? It creates a climate and it creates a demand. Mm-hmm. You know, so like a lot of what I think we'll see in the coming decade is there's going to be a lot more 
trans rep by trans authors Mm -hmm. because that's something that the mainstream has not done particularly well. And that's a group, you know, that that's multiple groups of people who are, are finding each other, talking about the kind of things they want to read, pushing for the kind of things they want to read, writing the kind of things they want to read. And mm -hmm. when you get that kind of zeitgeist, you know, it eventually sooner or later, somebody turns around and goes, we, we could work at that. Uh, <laughs> you know? right, so right. so it's, a, it's a getting to that point of recognizing that there is an audience. I mean, for a long time, you know, one of the reasons you go through waves on queer rep in from the big houses is because they look at it and go, this is a very small group of people. Straight people aren't going to read this. People who aren't, you know, identify as queer aren't going to read this. So there just isn't, you know, we can't sell this. There's nobody to sell this to. We don't know how to do this. Right. And it's so that's, strange. <laughs> it, it is, but it, it, but it's a thing that happens a lot. Sure. And you yeah. can see it. I mean, they'll, they'll actually like, sometimes they forget and use their outside the head voices and people will yeah. get, you know, emails that are like, Ooh, I could sell this book if you make everybody straight, you know, it's, it's wow. that kind of thing. Uh, um, uh, so that, that, that stuff is real and it does happen. Um, you know, I think you probably see a, a flavor of it more in YA. Um, but I think that also coming out of speaking of, uh, speaking of, of civil unrest um, that I think we're also going to see, I hope, a lot more uh, writers of African heritage, black writers, immigrant writers um, coming out of this time period and telling stories and telling the kinds of stories they want to read and the kinds of stories that they've been writing, but that they maybe wouldn't have been able to sell on a bigger stage before. Mm -hmm. And I yeah, think that, that that's definitely going to be something that happens going forward. It, it, the signs seem to be pointing in that direction, and that's something that we uh, always, uh, at least on this show and in our personal lives, we encourage people to do. Is that if you're uh, if you're not part of a particular community that's typically been marginalized or has had difficulty getting stories out there on the main stage, um, go seek those out. Like make, make it so that the the world of publishing can see that it's not just people to whom these identities specifically apply who will buy and read those stories. Um, everyone else should go get them too, because there are great stories. You read them for the quality of the story, but also it does, it helps support, show them that the audience is there so that more right. publishers will buy these novels and stories and everything and put them out there. Mm -hmm. Yep. Help make it a little more fair, hopefully. Yeah. That's what we hope for, and that's why we're going to put uh, your books and, and Queen of Swords uh, uh, publications in our show notes so that everyone can go find them. We highly recommend everyone go do that. You can do exactly what I was just describing. Go go get a book right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, we I do. Like you. We got <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you all are amongst my favorite people. Just saying. <laughs> Well, we, we my affections can be bought with you, really. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, well, that uh, we really do like. We we appreciate the work that you do, and we know that you know running a small press, running a press of any kind is is it's a hell of a lot of work. And we know you put in the work uh, with with your own writing and with the, the publishing work that you do, and that's um, we appreciate it because that helps. I mean, now we have you know this is just another avenue that we can go to find more stories like this to read. And that's, you know, that's part of the work. Every little bit of it counts. Um, right. So that's, we appreciate what you do to, to help make those stories more visible and to teach us about history too. When there's, there's it sounds like there's, we could do a whole series on getting into the actual 
you know, the, the nuts and bolts of all the, uh, of this entire history, but thanks for giving us a really great overview of it. I would love um, to come back and talk more about it. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we can, we, we, we can like definitely do more. Yeah. Oh yeah. We put, we put out an episode a week. So <laughs> <laughs> well, when next you have an opening, yeah, give, give me a call and we'll, we'll work something out. <laughs> we'll, we'll do. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, everyone can, yeah, where, uh, so you said you're at, um, well, I'm sorry, what was your Twitter handle again? Are you on Twitter very much? I, um, yeah, I'm on Twitter constantly. It's a horrible, horrible habit, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, first initial Lundoff, so it's C Lundoff. Um, but okay. Queen of Swords Press also has its own Twitter. So if, yes. if you want the less political version with fewer rants and less cursing, that's all on Queen <laughs> of Swords Press, and that's QOS <laughs> Press. And same, same thing for Instagram. So. Okay, yeah, QOS Press. Got it. Okay. And if you want to find us, you can find us, of course, at Glitchy Pancakes on uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, stream episodes from glitchypancakes.com or on your favorite podcast apps. Um, I'm personally at Jesse underscore A underscore Adams on Twitter. Rob, where do people find you? And I am at EI Blackout. That is I A I B L A C K O U T on Twitter. And I'm on Facebook as well. That's that dude, Rob. Same person, same name, whatever. And Allie, <laughs> where can we find you at on Twitter? I am at Allie911, pretty much anywhere on the internet. And let me just do a quick plug for Multiverse Convention. Our second year uh, has gone all virtual this year. So. Um, that is free, and uh, if you have never done a convention and are interested in cool panels and fun people, um, that's mm-hmm. October 16th through the 18th, online and free. And I believe Catherine yeah. is joining us for a yep. while there. So. I am yes. one of your fun people. Again, you I'm are. So excited. <laughs> yes, has you're joined one of our... Us, uh, yeah, Catherine has joined us now for two years straight, so she yep. is one of our inaugural uh, guests. So. Come yes, buy stuff was, from her. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> this will be, uh, yeah, October 16th through 18th, multiversecon.org will be where you go to find that stuff. And uh, yeah, Catherine was one of our inaugural guests, and I will never forget her because she saved my life uh, with a well-timed Luna bar <laughs> after I had not been eating. I had not eaten for about 48 hours because of You were sad. looking sad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was like, yeah. barely on my feet and she made me stop walking and eat something <laughs> and that probably yeah that saved my weekend so I uh, appreciate that <laughs> excellent glad to have been of service yep uh, yeah. I, I know uh, a lot of convention out. organizers and I know that look <laughs> <laughs> the, the thousand yard stare yeah. yes <laughs> it was <laughs> I was in the middle of it for sure. Um, yeah, but definitely come everybody check out uh, multiversecon.org October 16th or 18th online and free and uh, check out Catherine's panels and hear more about all kinds of cool stuff. Um, thank you again for joining us, Catherine. And we're going to have to have you on again soon. Thank you. Um, if anyone has questions, comments, suggestions, concerns, anything like that, email us at cakespod at gmail.com. And uh, I think we got it. I think we got everybody's contact info in there. So that's good. Um, Thank you for listening, everybody. We appreciate it. We'll have another one coming your way soon. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you all later. Goodbye. Bye, Bye guys.